from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. My interview today is with Charles Shingledecker, and he is the author of the book Freedom to Doubt. Freedom to Doubt, Charles or Chuck Shingledecker. Chuck is a self-proclaimed doubting Thomas. He was baptized Roman Catholic, raised in a religiously tolerant home. Then he was born again at the age of 19 and spent most of his 20s uh, trying to silence what he calls a, quote, still small voice, end quote, of doubt that pointed out all of the contradictory claims found within the Bible and the various Christian traditions. So his book, Freedom to Doubt, uh, explores all of that. I'm going to talk with Chuck about that book and about his journey through doubt in a little bit. But before I get there, because I don't do this very often and inspired by Chuck, I thought I'd share with you uh, some of my own beliefs or non-beliefs. I I don't often talk too much about myself, but I thought this might be fun. Um, And so a few years ago, about three years ago, I wrote a blog post on my blog, Shuck and Jive, um, entitled, What Presbyterians Believe Except Me?, And it was inspired there by a magazine, our trade magazine, Presbyterians Today. And and they talk about what do Presbyterians believe? And the various authors listed out all the stuff they believed. And I realized as I read through that thing that I really didn't believe most any of it. And, uh, And I thought, wow, what does that mean? And I think what that means is that many of us, whether we admit it or not, are on journeys and so I thought, well, what do I really believe? And so I wrote down eight things that I believe, and I thought I'd share them with you. I believe in evolutionary theory. This obviously includes human beings. Evolution and science in general have had major implications regarding theology that we mostly ignore or in our worst moments deny. That's number one. Here's number two. I believe in higher criticism of the Bible. The Bible, like all other books, are human products. What else could they be? And they should be read as such, as opposed to special revelation from a divine being. That was number two. Here's number three. I believe that all religion is a human construct. Its primary purpose has been and should be an attempt to find and evoke meaning amidst life's contingencies, as opposed to speculation regarding supernaturalism. Number four, I believe that, quote, God, end quote, or put God in quotation marks, that God functions as a symbol. The concept of God is a product of myth-making, and God is no longer credible as a personal supernatural being. For me, God functions as a shorthand for the universe and sometimes for qualities and aspirations I wish to pursue or to emulate. Belief number five, I believe that human consciousness is the result of natural selection. Human beings do not have immortal souls, nor will consciousness survive death. Thus, there is no afterlife, there is no heaven, no hell, and no need for salvation from one realm to another. Number six, 
I believe that there is no end in human time. Earth is four billion years old. Earth was here long before human beings. Earth will spin on its axis and revolve around the sun long, long after the last human being has breathed her last. We will have to find meaning and our eschaton in this life. Number seven, I believe that Jesus may have been historical, but most of the stories about him in the Bible and elsewhere are legends. But he's cool. He serves as a human ideal and a focal point for devotion, kind of like an Ishtadeva, a chosen deity in the Hindu tradition. Number eight, I believe that industrial civilization is in for a long descent. Peak oil and overshoot should be everyday terms in our lexicon, and we ought to be putting our religious energies towards spiritual, emotional, and practical preparation for this reality. And so those are just some of the things that I think about. I don't insist, and I could change many of my ideas tomorrow, but that's where I find myself in the present. And I'm not alone. There are many of us religious, in church, not in church, who have all kinds of doubts about traditional beliefs and believe all kinds of things we're not, quote, supposed to believe, and yet we do anyway. My suggestion is to doubt boldly. Liberate yourself. Be who you are. Say what you really think. It's fun. My guest, Charles Shingledecker. He's the author of Freedom to Doubt. Welcome, Chuck, to Religion for Life. Hi, John. It's uh, great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to write Freedom to Doubt. Well, it's a, it's a long story uh, that I'll try to squeeze in here. Uh, <laughs> I, um, for a number of years, you know, I, I, was, I was in the fundamentalist evangelical Christian movement. I, I really wasn't raised in a, in a religious home per se. We believed in God and, you know, we did the, the basic, you know, Christmas and Easter stuff, but really wasn't a church going Christian in that sense. And when I was 19, I kind of went through a born again experience and started going to, you know, various churches and really studying my Bible and, uh, that, uh, typical uh, zealous kind of convert stage that a lot of a lot of young especially young Christians go through and the more I read uh, the more I began to have questions and in a lot of church communities that's kind of looked down upon it's at least in my experience it was and I, I started in fact uh, I started reading the biblical scholars and church history and because I, I didn't understand how there could be contradictions in the Bible because I were I was always told you know the Bible is the infallible word of God it's it's perfect and I didn't see that and so I I, I went uh, I, I began to study church history and Christian origins and New Testament scholarship and uh, began to see, oh, there, there really are contradictions, and and okay, how does how does my faith deal with this? And eventually, I I filtered through several denominations and different traditions, and I, I eventually found my way to the to the Eastern Orthodox Church, and uh, I was 
quite zealous there for a while. And uh, I was, I felt called to the priesthood and I was going through a, a lengthy discernment period full of study and prayer. And then I was all of a sudden stricken with several major health complications in my late 20s. And that's when I really began to question not only particular church traditions, but but my 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 whole general faith as a whole. And you know, I thought, wow, I've I'm kind of going through a lot of stuff here. I'm asking for I'm praying for healing and it's not coming. And and I began to ask, okay, uh, why do I believe what I believe? And and that's that's kind of the the origins of freedom to doubt. And that that sense of of doubt, um, especially as you as you're talking about your story of 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 your own your own need for healing, your own questioning, and and that doubt seems uh, to be um, uh, felt like a bad thing, right? Like a sinful thing, like something you're not supposed to do. Precisely, I was particularly because of that you know ten year period where I was kind of filtering through different traditions, trying to find the the quote. The, the one true church as, as I, I thought of it, you know, it was where, where is the true church of Christ? And every time I would find a, a, a community or a tradition that, oh, this, that I would kind of like, and then it was always, every time I would bring up a question was, no, don't, don't question this. Um, some of the more church, some of the churches that were more open to that, to questioning where the answer would always be, yes, you can doubt, but as long as your doubt kind of leads to a, a stronger faith. And my doubts have never led to a stronger faith. It's, it's, it always seems to be more and more doubt. And so I was always struggling with this, that this feeling that I'm doing something terrible. I'm, I'm wrong. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm unworthy because I question the Bible, or I question doctrine, or I question God, and that—that's just who I am. And it took me a long, long time to, to kind of accept that doubt is is okay. And it really came down to a conversation I had with a with a dear fellow Orthodox Christian friend, and she she told me I flat out asked her in a conversation that have you ever doubted the existence of God? And she looked at me and she said, yes. And that simple answer kind of lifted the burden off my shoulders. And she proceeded to then tell me, don't fear your doubts. And that has always stuck with me ever since. And that was really the first major step to, to, to not only accept that I am a skeptical and doubting person, but to actually embrace them and to, to try to incorporate them as a part of my faith. And, of course, your book is a study of a number of different things. You have uh, Old Testament scriptures, um, some uh, New Testament stories, some theological uh, questions and doctrines. Uh, which one kind of got you going? When you were back in your evangelical days, what was the, the first one or uh, that really said, wow, I got to really look at this again? I. It's a great question. I, I would think it, it's probably... For me, it would probably be 
a toss-up between the creation story as interpreted in in those fundamentalist churches and the doctrine of hell. I think those were would be the two biggest things that that really sparked something in the back of my mind and that I, I just I just deep down I couldn't accept them. And you know what I'm really impressed uh, with your book is is how much you went into it. And, and now uh, I don't know what what level of training you have, uh, you know, in, in scholarship and stuff. But you you went at it um, and and looking at the various texts and saying I'm going to ask these questions and I'm going to keep asking them. And that's that's a sense in which um, in many times in religious circles that's not supposed to happen. You, there's a, there's a, a glass ceiling up there of of how far you can go. But you've gone ahead and, and broken through that and say let's let's explore these questions as far as they can go yeah I, uh, I I don't have any technical formal training in the sense that I, I have no degrees or anything in New Testament scholarship uh, however I, I have spent uh, over a hundred hours taking uh, correspondence courses online through Harvard and Yale uh, introduction to new to the New Testament and I've literally spent thousands of hours reading I haven't I have an extensive library um, that I can't even fit on in my on my bookshelves <laughs> at this point, and uh, it's 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 something that I I love doing because I love trying to figure out what the pieces of the puzzle the puzzles are and how they fit together and to try to answer the questions that I didn't feel churches were answering for me. Robert M. Price, uh, one of my favorites, uh, author of The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and, and among a number of other books. He was, I guess, on my show uh, when he was talking about the Christ myth theory. Um, so how did you get to know Robert Price? He wrote the foreword to your book. He did. I, uh, it's an interesting story, actually. I, I Just by chance, I had stumbled across his uh, podcast, uh, The Bible Geek Show, uh-huh. and I well, this sounds interesting, and I started listening, and and it was this interest, interesting, interactive kind of uh, program where listeners can write their own questions and send them in, and he'll answer them on on the show. And I uh, I was I found that fascinating, and I thought, you know, I'm going to ask some of the really tough questions that no one else has ever really answered for me. Uh, and it was kind of neat to have this New Testament scholar that could have this one-on-one interaction with his listeners. And I began writing questions in and I would sign them, uh, Chuck the Agnostic Christian. <laughs> and because that's kind of where I was at that time. And mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure what I believed, but I, I still filtered everything through the lens of Christianity in some form. And I asked questions. He answered them. He actually hooked me up with uh, through through email with with another listener of his uh, who who had kind of was having the same journey out of his Christianity that that I was. And at some point, he's actually settled out of Christianity, where I've stayed within it. And that's the really the the origins of that and he's, he's a great guy he's he's a he has a brilliant mind and um i i really have i've i've had a lot of fun getting to know him 
Well, I like uh, Robert Price in that, the, in, in the sense that he he continues to uh, with a, with a sense of, of joy, and that comes out in your book too. There's a sense of cathar. Uh, you're writing. I'm thinking as I read your book along, it's it's somewhat cathartic, and at the same time, uh, you know. Um, really open and honest about, gosh, I have some really stumble over, over these questions about the Bible or about uh, Trinity, and, and I'm going to go ahead and ask them and and, uh, and see what happens uh, with that. And who, who do you think, um, who is the audience uh, for your book? Well, my audience, the audience that I'm looking for has always been, in the back of my mind, people who ask these sorts of same questions, but are afraid to uh, to, to voice them to people or and or those who are not only afraid to voice them, but feel like by having these questions, they're being unchristian or unchristlike. And, and because that's how I felt. And I, I really at the time, you know, four or five years ago, I, I really wish there had been a book like this that said, you know what, it's it's okay to doubt and to ask these really difficult questions and to say, I today I don't believe in the Trinity. I think I doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. I don't believe it. And and that's kind of okay because I think that that's actually where a lot of Christians are. I I, I believe, at least in my limited personal experience, from talking with people, that that's where a majority of Christians are, but they don't feel like they can express that openly, and they they feel like they're alone. And when I get feedback on this book, that's that's kind of the, the one thing that I've gotten that really warms my heart, is that when someone says, I, I always felt alone, like I was the only person in the world that had these questions, and now I've read your book and I don't feel like I'm alone anymore. And I think that just lifts a huge burden from people. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is Charles Shingledecker, the author of Freedom to Doubt. And you can find his website at uh, charlesshingledecker.com. And I, I, what I found intriguing about you is that in many ways, uh, I, I, you're similar to me. Uh, you still identify uh, as Christian, while at the same time, philosophically, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps uh, a post-theist, non-theist, um, but you still value your Christian tradition. Do you think you and I are the only ones, Chuck? I, I actually don't. I, I Three years ago, I would have said, yeah, I must be the only one. And, uh-huh. and t- today, I, I, don't, I don't think we're the only people like that. I, I think there's a, there's a large yeah, group I agree. of Christians who, who do identify with that and but they they're afraid to voice it in public because of uh, backlash they they might receive from their family or their friends or their churches or whatever it may be you know um your your book also pointed out that there's this uh need uh, among christians uh, to prove or, or not prove but accept everything that the bible says on on face value um you know that that somehow that's a good story even when it isn't an obvious when it's obviously not a good story for example the uh, uh, uh stories in the book of joshua or or the funny one you talk about with uh, of course elijah and and the uh, she bears and the cursing of all of that kind of stuff uh in fact the she bear story uh, i actually hadn't thought about that before the interpretation that makes most sense is um that uh, it was a, a warning against Elisha for using like these supernatural curses. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's that's actually something that I, I got from 
directly from uh, Robert M. Price and, and a few other authors who, who have said that that's, that's actually what, in their opinion, that that's what the story is saying is to, to not use God's name in vain, meaning do not frivolously invoke curses upon people in, in God's name. And, and to me, that makes a lot more sense of the story than any other interpretation I'd ever heard as a Christian. And, and I, that's the one I kind of adhere to until I may perhaps stumble across something that makes more sense of it. Because the idea of most many times in reading that story, people want to ob- obviously defend Elisha or and they'll go to all kinds of twisted rationalizations to show that, uh, well, those little kids really deserved a mauling. And uh, and of course, the obvious explanation is, no, that was that was a bad thing to do. And in a similar sense with the story of, of Joshua, I remember even in seminary and Old Testament professors just going through strained um, it, it seemed to me explanations of somehow that that was a good thing to exterminate those people in the land. And, and of course, the obvious answer that I've come to over the years, and I think maybe maybe what I'll ask what you think is, is that people were just basically justifying their own place and using theological reasons for it. Yeah, I think, I think that's the simplest explanation of, of the, the, the conquest of Canaan is, is that uh, as, as archaeological uh, studies and research have shown is that the story of the conquest of Canaan is a, is a group of, is a, is a tribal group of people from the ancient Bronze Age trying to explain their place in the world and perhaps justify it by, you know, theological means. And the, the, the idea that we have to say that it's, it's, it's a moral story or it makes sense, it, to me it just twists the biblical text into something that it never was intended to be. And I think that frustrates me actually more than just about anything else is when you, is when Christians and, and Christian apologists take a text that clearly says something that we know is immoral and, and tries to turn it into something else to tries to make it uh, apologists, you know, they're, they're apologizing defending the Bible, they're defending God in a sense. And I, I don't think God needs us to defend him. You know, Robert Price said something, it's uh, that kind of activity puts a halo around bad texts. Um, and, and there's a sense in which we just need to, to call them out and, and, and address them on, on basic issues of, of uh, correctness, in a sense, from our point of view, or, 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 how we, or at least honestly how we evaluate them. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that, that this, this problem is not a new problem in, mm-hmm. within the Christian world. The number of the ancient church fathers saw many of these problems in, in the Bible. Uh, origin of Alexandria really, really noticed, hey, wait a minute, there's some things in the Bible that don't make sense. They're immoral. And his view is, okay, these things simply never happened. They're, they're, they're methods that God is using for us to, to dig beyond the quote-unquote literal meaning of the text to, to tell us something more. They're almost like parables. They're, they're stories to illuminate the, the human mind and the human heart and to look past that. And, and what frustrates me is when people just read the, the surface meaning of the text and say, oh, it means this and then twists it and, and makes it into something it's not. Of your book, which, which sections uh, were the most fun for you to write? I think the most fun is the uh, 
chapter on the Christmas story. That's that's my favorite chapter. It was my favorite chapter to write uh, because I love the Christmas story and I I I really it has great deep meaning to me. But it's a it's a fun story to look at in the way that biblical scholars do and and say okay the story that I was raised isn't really in the Bible and it's it's a fun story. Uh, it looks at not only the Christmas story itself, but the the whole idea of of the the virgin birth and why there's a why there's such a doctrine and the ever virginity of Mary, which claims that Mary never had sex ever in her life, never had any other children other than Jesus. And I respect all those different traditions, uh, but I I also find it it's really just a fun story to deconstruct and to look at from different perspectives and i i that's definitely my favorite chapter in the book chuck shingledecker my guest on religion for life he's the author of freedom to doubt and um uh, uh, an excellent book that uh, looks through some various puzzles of the christian faith and Chuck, your, your basic thing is, as I understand it, is to embrace the questions that we have and be honest about them and not confuse faith with certainty. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, faith is is something, you know, and I, I have a little section in the book called Faith Versus Fact, and, and mm-hmm. it's when we, when we try to make our faith into a historical fact— meaning every single thing we can prove in some scientific manner or some philosophical way. Uh, to me, it diminishes what faith is because faith is, to me, it's, it's bigger than that. It's, it's not just about such and such a thing literally happened in history. And I, to me, that God is, is really a mystery. And this is where I, I feel comforted by my Eastern Orthodox faith is that for the Orthodox Church, we, we tend not to say things like God is this or God is love. It's we take a they call it the apophatic approach where where we we say what God is not, because anytime we say what God is, anything we say is going to fall short. So it's it's just much easier to say God is not evil, because to say that God is good it's not it doesn't even come close to grasping what what god really is um and and i think with christians really need to embrace the the idea of of doubt and to question their faith because for me as you said earlier it's it's cathartic it's healing and i uh I, i think for for christianity to kind of move into the into the 21st century really christians are going to have to become more comfortable with this this idea that it's okay to question it's okay to doubt because that's what christianity is it's it's about the struggle it's about the the, the focusing on the message of jesus uh not the message about jesus chuck uh, we just about have a, a minute left uh, what what are you working on now what's your next book uh, well, my next book is is going to be about, uh, I'm doing research now, I'm starting to do a few interviews with people. It's about why people are leaving the church, and particularly young people. Um, why is that? And because there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, theories out there and 
easy answers that a lot of communities want to have. Uh, well, let's just fix this problem by having a rock band. And, and I think the problem goes far deeper than that. Chuck Shingledecker, my guest on uh, Religion for Life, author of Freedom to Doubt. Uh, I uh, highly praise this book and highly praise your work as a person struggling and writing and being honest about doubts and faith and all of it together. Chuck, thanks for your book and thanks for being with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you. It was great to be here. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, public life, faith, and doubt. My name is John Sheck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Website FPC, elizabethton.org. Find more information about this show, including links to podcasts, at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City and WEHC in River Virginia. Be well. Be well.